0: Welcome um, to Anko Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Anko Farm, ETSU's Bill Gadden College of Pharmacy. It is uh, right in the middle of December here, uh, as we wind down uh, the, the calendar year. And um, an Ash, the American Society of Hematology's annual conference, was this past weekend. I did not attend. I know many people who did, and they shared their thoughts on social media. And I reviewed lots of abstracts and images and things like that. Uh, but there wasn't really a ton of, uh, you know, what I would consider, or other people have called practice-changing stuff that was presented. So these are really just some small bites uh, from ASH that will hit pretty quickly. But first, um, maybe the, uh, the most uh, notable uh, hematology uh, um, advance um, in the past week did not come from ASH, but FDA's approval of two uh, cellular therapies, Casgevy. Uh, C-A-S-G-E-V-Y, Casgevy, Casgevy, um, and then uh, Lyfgenia, L-Y-F-G-E-N-I-A. These are both cellular therapies for sickle cell disease. Um, Casgevy is, uh, uses CRISPR technology, so basically you're crisping, <laughs> uh, that's not really a verb, but you're using CRISPR to modify the stem cells uh, so that they are resistant resistant to sickling, then um, as with the other agent, they get a of uh, regimen, get a transplant with their stem cells back, and um, uh, and then their, their new uh, hematopoietic system has red blood cells that are less resistant, or more resistant, less likely to, uh, to sickle. Um, and then uh, Ligenia is kind of like CAR-T, except CAR-T is chimeric antigen receptor T-cell. Uh, it's like CAR-T in that it, it uses a lentil viral vector to actually uh, insert a, a new gene for hemoglobin A Uh, that is less resistant to the sickling that happens in sickle cell disease so major major advance in sickle cell disease um, it's going to come to the cellular therapy teams uh, around uh, the country Uh, this has been in clinical trial for a while uh, so really excited to see this come to fruition especially the you know the crispr technology i feel like is only a decade old and there's already an approved product obviously lots of monitoring for long-term safety and things like that we'll go on with that but you know the things we can do the things we can do with science Um, so there are, um, like I said, you know, you know, for Ash, there's a lot of basic science that goes on. A lot of investigational drugs were studied, and if you're at a really high-level practice, and you have a lot of clinical trials. That's helpful to figure out, you know, what is maybe the hot new trend for people who who need uh, an experimental drug because they have no options left. You know, my practice is more, you know, uh, as a as a as a, not a tertiary. Um, but not a critical access hospital, kind of a secondary uh, treatment center, you know we see a lot of the bread and butter and I think we do a really good job with the bread and butter, so that's kind of where I'm going to focus, you know, what I saw and again, these are kind of, you know, appetizers. Um, So there was a subset analysis um, uh, or, you know, an an exploratory post-hoc analysis of Polarix. Now Polarix was that big study from New England Journal of Medicine from 2022 of polituzumab in place of vincristine in the RCHOP, they call it the Pola RCHOP regimen. Compared to RCHOP for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, it showed, you know, an, uh, a, a you know, a statistically and clinically significant improvement in progression-free survival, but not an improvement in overall survival. The idea being, those folks who aren't cured with RCHOP can be salvaged with transplant, potentially CAR T. Now, in that original paper, if you look at the forest plot, now these are ratios, right? The forest plot we're looking at ratios in the subgroup analysis. And we saw those with germinal center B type for that cell of origin, on average, as a ratio, they did just as well with RCHOP as with Polararchet, but there appeared to be a pretty sizable, uh, you know, favorability and effect for, for polituzumab in that arm for the activated B cell cell of origin. Now those are ratios, okay. So one of the things that was interesting is there was a you know a, a, a subgroup analysis or a, another publication looking specifically at cell of origin as well as many other biomarkers that frankly I'd never even heard of. Um, and you know when you look at this, you actually see the progression-free survival curves based on you know the germinal B center type or and the ABC type and for for the germinal B-center type, you don't see any difference. The progression-free survival curves are superimposed. You can't tell one from the other. It's red, blue, it looks like a purple line, okay? Now, you do see a very sizable impact for Pola R-chip, um, where that PFS, the PFS curve separates quite a bit and stays nice and, and almost parallel uh, to, the, to the X-axis, whereas the, uh, the R-chop arm goes down uh, pretty consistently there to the point of a hazard ratio of 0.34. And a, and a 95% comes out of 0.21 to 0.56. Uh, now again, it's exploratory. It, it, you wouldn't say that that is probably statistically significant, but it's very notable um, if you're trying to limit and, and you know the use of an expensive and toxic drug like polituzumab. In, you know certainly in the, the the germinal B center type, the germinal center B type doesn't make a ton of sense to me to use polituzumab there uh, after seeing this. And that was the first time we saw those curves, and really interesting. The ABC type has a poor prognosis in general all things considered to, all things equal to, to GCB. But if you, if you look at the curves here, the polar R-chip patients with ABC do just as well and maybe even looks a little bit better than the GCB folks where they get polar R-chip or r So, you know, potentially years and, and this is getting, I'm talking crazy here, but years and years and years ago, you know, HER2 positivity application was a poor prognostic factor for breast cancer the development of herceptin and our HER two target therapy, and now HER two implication is a favorable prognostic factor because we have such good target therapy, uh, and we saw this with Bortezomib negating some of the poor prognostic, you know, cytogenetics, uh with uh, with multiple myeloma. So you know these newer therapies, uh, as more and more time goes by, we find what their real benefit is, and I think maybe we're seeing part of that here uh, with polatuzumab, a a study that has been presented already again. Um, was uh, SWOG uh, 1826. This is nivolumab AVD compared to BV AVD. Uh, so no bleo any, for anybody in this arm. Uh, and this is a analysis looking at the older patients, those over the age of 60, and you see a sizable improvement in progression-free survival with the nivolumab-based regimen versus the brentuximab bodotin based regimen. And you also see uh, you know, some separation with one-year overall survival as well with a one-year overall survival of 95% in the nivolumab arm versus 83% in the pertuximab arm. Again, subset analysis, exploratory, but the curves are the curves and the safety data are over, you know, overwhelmingly volume map compared to Pertuximab but don't, especially in older patients who aren't gonna tolerate that level of myelosuppression. So something that, that was something I, I did see people talk about standard of care. And they say that in the abstract, but you know, you don't really necessarily believe what they say uh, in the abstract. You know, the other thing that I saw a lot of people talking about uh, with regards to multi-myeloma, a lot of myeloma talk seems to be uh, at ASH, was that if you're using an upfront quad and quads, um, are, you know, a f- four-drug regimen, right, for myeloma? So you got a, a CD28 monoclonal antibody like DareTumab or isatuximab You've got your proteasome inhibitor like bortezomib or carfilzomib. You've got your lenalidomide, your imid, and then your steroid, dexamethasone. If you're using quads up front, there's a lot of toxicity if that quad-based regimen includes carfilzomib, and saw quite a bit of that. Uh, in fact, there was a, and this was one of the plenary sessions, was isotuximab, carfilzomib, lenalidomide and DEX compared to just KRD. The primary endpoint of that was um, undetectable minimum residual disease. I had 300 patients one-to-one to to both arms. Kind of a smaller study. That was one of the plenaries. Um, You know, really not all that exciting. I don't know know, a lot of people were using that regimen up front because of the toxicity. Um, But what I will talk about, and this was a late breaker in myeloma, um, similar study design maybe, but but a, a larger study, almost twice as big, and that's the Perseus, P-E-R-S-E-U-S. And this was actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine this week. This is a, a upfront quad with darA, And we have, you know, DERATimab is FD approved upfront, you know, with a thalidomide uh, regimen, along with bortezomib and dexamazone. Here in the States, we don't use a ton of thalidomide, but this is bortezomib, linolamide, dex, the, the RVD regimen or the VRD, plus DERATimab versus, versus VRD here. Uh, so they're getting, um, you know, VRD for six cycles. Uh, uh, total for, for an induction, and then they get a MEL 200 autologous stem cell transplant, followed by two cycles of VRD consolidation. Pretty standard of care there. Now, um, and then maintenance linolamide. The DARA TUMAB regimen got DARA VRD transplant, and then they get DARA VRD for two cycles of consolidation, and they're getting linolamide and DARA for maintenance. So they're getting DARA the whole time. It's a quad, quad, quad all the way. Um, now, if after two years of daratumab, they have, um, you know, a complete response and unmeasurable uh, or undetectable minimal residual disease. Then they can stop daratumab and they restart rules that I, you know, I won't get into uh, for those purposes there. But the primary endpoint here is is progression-free survival, which we'll get to. This is a pretty young group, you know. The median age of diagnosis here is 60, um, or, or is uh, sorry, the median age in this study is 60. The median age of diagnosis for myeloma is older than that. It's a very very wide study, mostly IgG, seventy five percent standard risk, so a pretty prime treat, you know, group of patients for aggressive treatment here, a- and we're seeing, you know, a, a very sizable improvement in progression free survival with darA, uh, VRD versus VRD, which should not be surprising, you know, we know that so we're getting darA up front and then maintenance compared to VRD, um, the estimated four year. Um, progression-free survival. And why is it estimated when the curves go out beyond four years? Because not everyone on the study has been on study for four years because some people just started the study, you know, a year and a half ago. Uh, and we're predicting how well that person will do based on how well everyone has done on study before them, based on a mathematical model. So the estimated four-year disease-free survival is 84% with uh, Dara VRD versus 68% with VRD. It's a very sizable improvement in progression-free survival. Now still more than two-thirds of these folks uh, are thought to be alive without disease progression with, you know, the current state of care, uh, VRD, and then transplant. Um, so, <clears throat> now that's progression-free survival in a disease that, especially in younger patients with, uh, you know, overwhelmingly good prog- prognostic factors, you know, are <clears throat> are gonna do well and they're gonna have a chance to get second-line daratumab as well. Um, there, um, you know, there are only 34 deaths in the Dara arm so far and 44 deaths in the uh, in the control arm and this is with um, about 700 patients total on this study so uh, a little over seven. So a large study, low death rate, is there an overall survival benefit? It's gonna take a long time to see what that is. Um, a little unclear uh, the benefit of adding you know obviously you get a lot more you know response and MRD negativity by adding daratumab you get some more toxicity, you get a whole lot more expense um, and uh, you know, for, for young patients, you know, makes more sense than for older patients. Uh, there is a uh, you know a subgroup analysis where uh, you know you see that the, the benefit um, in those under the age of 65 is is very robust. For those over the age of 65, you got, the hazard ratio is 0.97 for those folks, whereas the hazard ratio for those under the age of 65 is 0.3, and the hazard ratio for PFS for the whole co- co- the entire cohort is 0.43. So most of the benefit really seems to be in those younger patients uh, and that kind of supports what anecdotally people have said about how they're treating um, they're treating myeloma and when they're using quads or in those those young patients uh, in, in the first line setting when they're fit. Alright, uh, another study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and then another you know kind of disease state that takes a while to see any uh, overall survival benefit, and this is the FLAIR study uh, and this is um, CLL treatment with venetoclax and abrutinib guided by measurable residual disease. <clears throat> so this is uh, you know newly diagnosed CLL patients without deletion 17P. That part of the 17th chromosome is where the, the TP53 gene is, which is our body's main tumor suppressor gene. You don't have that, you're not suppressing tumors, poor prognosis. Now, the first caveat here is you know the, the way that our guidelines would say to treat these folks that um, have no deletion of 17p is you do acalabrutinib plus or minus obinutuzumab, venetoclax plus obinutuzumab or zanubrutinib. So you're given, you know, either uh, a BTK inhibitor, a newer generation BTK inhibitor that's less cardiotoxic, or venetoclax plus obinutuzumab. <clears throat> this com- the control arm here is FCR, fludarabine cyclophosphamide rituximab, which you know you could make an argument for. And those folks with mutated uh, IG heavy chain, IGHV, um, which was only like 30 some percent of people in this study. Um, So it's got a bad control arm. Now, the study does have long follow-up. The study started a long time ago. Um, And you know, you see, you know, an improvement progression-free survival. If they had power you know, if they had just powered for overall survival, they would have seen a difference as an improvement in overall survival here, favoring a and venetoclax. We know there's good benefit of a and venetoclax in the second line setting. We know in the first line setting it gets you, <clears throat> you know, good response. What is notable about this study is none of what I've said so far. What's notable about this study was their design for use of brutinib and venetoclax. <clears throat> so they give brutinib for eight weeks. And then they start venoclax, which is fine. People are doing that in, other, in AML as well, in CLL, is let's side and reduce first and then add the venoclax to mitigate the risk of tumor lysis syndrome. That seems to be <clears throat> make a lot of sense. And then they continue that treatment <clears throat> until they, they get to an unmeasurable minimum residual, disease, which is no matter how big the microscope is, and they have a microscope of, uh, I forget what it is, like 10 to the negative fifth or, or whatever, um, no matter how potent the instrumentation is, They've, they realize we can't find any evidence of CL. Obviously, we don't see it on peripheral blood smear. We don't see it anywhere. with any of have our fancy, fancy next-generation sequencing tests. We don't find it, right? Undetectable, unmeasurable minimum residual disease. Let's say that takes a year. Well, then you wait another year and continue treatment for two years total and then stop. Okay? So it's basically the amount of time it takes to get to this U M R D, MRD, unmeasurable minimum residual disease, and then you then you double that time, right? So, okay, one year to get UMRD, you do two years of treatment. If it takes a year and a half to get to unmeasurable, minimal disease, then you do another year and a half for three years total of therapy. And that that's, you know, I'm not, I haven't read the, the background of what that rationale comes from. Maybe it could be another year total, like fixed one year from that time. Don't know that we need to, to double it necessarily, but that's what they did, okay? And at 24 months, Uh, 65, after 24 months, 65 people were able to stop treatment, which means that uh, 65 people had unmeasurable minimal residual disease at at one year. The paper says it's 28.9% of people, but it was 25% when I do my own math, um, using the the total number of people enrolled and randomized to Ibrutinib venetocrox. Um, that number is an an additional 23% at a year and a half. So about 50% of people after three years had stopped treatment and then another 7%. So a little over maybe 55 to 60% by uh, year four were off treatment. So you see some diminishing returns if you don't get to that, uh, you know, you get the most benefit up front it looks like for a population. And there's still some benefit year after year of another Section of the population turning to undetectable minimum residual disease uh, it 'll be interesting to see if this comes into practice obviously this this regimen uh, had uh, you know more cardiotoxicity than they would hope, but it was abrutinib you would not expect to see that with calibrutinib. Or Um and again, similar to the the caveat with the the, the quad-based regimens in multiple myeloma, is these folks are going to progress at CL. It's not a curable disease like most people consider multiple myeloma. So when they progress, you want to have good second-line options available. Uh, now, the the potential allure of doing a brutinib Venetoclax for a finite period of time is when they do have disease progression. If there's a, you know, for for example, we have this platinum-refractory, platinum-sensitive period of, say, like six months. Is there something like that? Whereas if your minimum residual disease starts to come back within a year, do we know that you're going to be ibrutinib benoclax susceptible and you can restart that without developing uh, resistance? Seems likely that that will be the case, and you might be able to even do two years on, one year off, two years on, or something like that um, for, for a long period of time and have really long-term disease control with this. Um, and, and you're starting to get the sense that with BTK inhibitors, maybe we're getting to the point that CLL is becoming at least 17p um, not deleted, which is what this population is. Maybe moving more and more into the CML range where we can give these people a pretty near normal quality of life, hopefully. Hopefully, we'll get to that point someday. That would be great. I will say, even though ASH did not have a ton of real big practice-changing stuff, I love the energy from the people at ASH, always wanting to to just kind of, you know move closer to to providing better care and hopefully cure for these hematologic diseases. You know, in hematologic, in hematology, it's, there's not, there's no radiation, there's no surgery like in salt tumors. It's all drugs, right? It's all drugs, and the drugs can get to the disease state pretty darn quickly. Um, Unlike, say, pancreatic cancer, it's really hard to get drugs to the side of of tumor. So there's always, um, you know, a a more aggressive approach, it seems, in malignant hematology, And and that's always exciting Uh, to to hear people talk about how excited they are about experimental therapies that that sometimes pan out, sometimes they don't. Well, that is what I have this week for you. You can follow me on the app, formerly known as Twitter, at PharmDietnib. You can follow me uh, and the podcast at oncofarmpod on X, Threads, and Instagram. And until I talk to you again, remember, dose is not